Well, tonight we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 37. It's a rather lengthy section of scripture, but really is one long story. And I have to say, when you read this passage of scripture, it might be one of those where you say, I have more questions than I have answers. This might be one of those stories because we recognize here God gives, but God takes away. And we wonder sometimes in the circumstances how we can see a mother who dumps her son's dead body on a bed, doesn't tell her husband what happened, and then goes after the prophet who predicted the son's birth. How do we engage with that? How do we understand uh, what that means to us today? In other words, this is one of those stories where you might ask some questions like, what in the world is going on here? And yet God teaches us some very important truths in this particular historical event. Follow along as I read, again, it's lengthy, verse 8 through verse 37 of 2 Kings 4. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. <coughs> so whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now. I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, 
Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came in, when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. We consider this reading of God's word. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, this is your word. It is true. It shall last forever. It shall not go forth and come back void. But Lord, we need your help to understand it. Give us your spirit that we might have ears to hear and hearts to understand. Help us to be aware of what you seek to teach us tonight in this story. We pray these things according to your power and ask that anything that's not consistent with your word would pass away. We pray in Jesus' name. You know, it's interesting, God gives wonderful gifts in Scripture, doesn't he? He does all kinds of powerful miracles. He does all kinds of things. He gives all kinds of great gifts. Of course, the greatest gift, one of the greatest in the New Testament, is the gift of the Holy Spirit to his people. But it's also true that many times God's good gifts seem to end badly in this life. When I look at the great gifts that God gave Solomon, I see the wisdom and the wealth that, God, that Solomon gained. And what did Solomon do? He used those gifts in the end to collect wives and spur idolatry in the land. Why did God give him those gifts? I look at King Hezekiah, one of the great kings of Judah. And Hezekiah, when he was sick, he prayed to God that he might deliver him from his illness. And God gave Hezekiah 15 extra years. But it was during that time that in Hezekiah's pride, he allowed Babylonian diplomats to come in and get inside information on the land of Judah. And God told him that because of that, these very people from Babylon, the Babylonians, would come and be the ones to destroy the country of Judah, not in Hezekiah's life, but in the generations to come. And then I look at even prophets. Hosea was given a great wife named Gomer. She was a prostitute, and he had called this woman out of her prostitution to come into a home and be his wife. But then God allowed her to be unfaithful, and you can imagine the personal anguish of Hosea when that great gift of a wife left him for other men. You see, God's plan is not always the happily ever after storybook ending in this life that we so desire, is it? 
My wife and I recently saw a rendition of Into the Woods. Perhaps you've heard that particular musical. And Into the Woods, it's one of those fairy tales where all these fairy tales are mixed together and there's all these story plot lines and all those things. And by the end of the first act, everything has come together and it looks like they're all going to live a happily ever after ending. And you want to end the musical right there. But the author, the writer of this musical, decided to write a second act where people die, other people are unfaithful, and you come to the end of the musical and you have about four characters left who are singing the song, We Are Not Alone. And you wonder how in the world, because all those good gifts and the happy endings of the first act end up like this. Well, this is one of those stories where it starts out looking like it's not going to have a happy ending. But it's all about the life that God gives. First of all, the life regarding a prophet's reward. Secondly, life being the result of faith. And thirdly, life truly being a gift of God. First of all, the circumstances. Here is this story. Here's Elisha. We've been introduced to Elisha now for a few chapters. And Elisha is one of those prophets we think uh, he might be someone who doesn't necessarily have all the nice and kind characteristics of a, of a gentle old man. He's the same guy who has told youths in the forest that they should not declare him to be a bald head and bears all these youths. He has also been the one that says to a king, I would not even consider you or let you come into my presence if it wasn't for some other king that's better than you, Jehoshaphat to Jehoram. And yet here we see a softer side of Elisha. He's going back and forth within the land and he's going through the city of Shunem, which is on the southern edge of the Sea of Galilee, on the southern part of one of the hills in that region. And he goes and he finds that there's this wealthy woman It doesn't even give us her name. She just becomes known to us historically as the Shunammite woman. And she's wealthy. And so she finds that he's going through the town. Somehow she realizes he is, according to verse 9, a holy man of God. And so she wants to give him rations as he comes by. Food. So she does. She urged him to eat some food, and now it becomes a stopping point in his journeys. Every time he goes through the Shunem area, he stops at her house and enjoys a meal. So here is a woman's hospitality. This woman's hospitality, Jesus even mentions the reward of rewarding someone for being hospitable to a prophet. He says, someone who receives a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. That's Matthew 10, 41. It's a reminder that we are to be hospitable to others. And then he says some other things in that passage as well. So this woman is giving food to the prophet. Not only that, but in her wealth and in her circumstances, she's been blessed with much. So she asked her husband to actually build a room for Elisha. So that when he comes through the region, he won't just enjoy a meal. Now he can enjoy a free place to stay. And so they build a room. The idea here is it's a roof room or upper chamber room. And he even put, she even puts the furniture in there, a bed, table, chair, lamp, everything that he will need to study the word, to do what he needs to do and rest and relaxation as he goes on his journey. So she gives food to the prophet. She uses her wealth 
for the sake of the prophet. And this woman's hospitality is very generous. She doesn't have to do this. This is something she wants to do because she recognizes the identity of Elisha as a man of God. So Elisha decides he wants to give a prophet's reward. After all, when somebody's kind to you, you want to return the kindness, right? And so he takes aside Gehazi, and he has Gehazi call this woman. And it's interesting in this passage, every time it refers to her, seemingly, it's this Shunammite. Not her by name. Uh, There's not a a personal uh, relationship to the point where they're they're alone together or anything like that. Uh, But he calls this woman through his servant Gehazi. And he basically tells her, how can I reward your faithfulness and your hospitality? And he finds out that this truly is a woman without need. He asks her, what can I do for you? This is verse 13. It says, would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. Now, what does that answer describe? It basically says, well, I don't need anything from the king. I certainly don't need anything from the commander of the army. I'm satisfied and have my needs met right here among my people. So here she's been asked the question, what do you need? And she says, nothing. She doesn't have a need for resources or even connections. She's content living where she is. And so she departs. But Elisha's not satisfied. He's uh, wanting to give this prophet's reward for her hospitality. So he asks his servant, what am I going to do? Verse 14, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi scratches his head perhaps and thinks about it and considers the circumstances. And he says two things. She's barren and her husband is old. In other words, it looks like her hope for a family is not there. Now, in this particular case, she's not like the woman earlier in the chapter who, when her husband dies, she has nothing. She's in terrible financial distress and need, and if she doesn't have her children, she has no means to support herself. This woman is wealthy. Her husband is living. She doesn't need a child, but this is a gracious gift to a barren woman. And so he calls, he has Gehazi call her. She comes to the doorway, and it's interesting, throughout all this conversation up until this point, he's spoken through his servant. But now he says to her, evidently, personally, as she's standing at the door, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And of course, just like Sarah in the Old Testament, just like so many that were seeking children that did not have them, she said, in amazement, no, don't lie to me. Don't deceive me. She couldn't believe it. This was, in her eyes, a miracle that this would take place. And yet, here is a prophet's reward. In this case, the reward was the life of a son. What a wonderful gift. You know, it's interesting when you think about this prophet's reward. What is it that Jesus says in Matthew 10, 41 and 42? Here's what he says. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. That's applicable to this case. 
The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now we can just close the story and say, isn't that wonderful? She's given the gift. She's done a good job. And even though we might have jobs that don't always give us all the rewards that we want, yet she has done a wonderful thing for this particular prophet, a man of God. And because of that prophet's wonderful uh, ability to imbibe in the food that she's provided and rest in the home and the room that she has built, then now everything looks wonderful. She's received the reward. She's going to have a son. And as scripture is interestingly uh, putting it, even though she doubts it in a just matter-of-fact way, the scriptures say, but the woman conceived, she bore a son about the time next spring, just as Elisha had said to her. But that's not the end of the story, is it? What happens when such a wonderful gift is taken away? Verse 18 when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. He evidently had a headache. In fact, it's interesting. When I read a 19th century commentator on this, they said, Well, it's evident that this child had a sunstroke. I don't know what it means. It means he had a headache of some sort. He had some kind of mortal condition at this particular point, perhaps uh, some kind of tumor in his head or some other thing causing him great pain. The father doesn't realize how dire the situation is. Tells his servant, carry him to his mother. They take him to his mother. The mother puts him on his lap until the child dies just a few hours later. You want to say, well, wait a minute here. God gave this good gift to this family in part as a reward for the wonderful things they were doing for God's prophet, a spokesman and a representative of God's glory and power. How is it that now God can take that particular gift away? And here's the epitaph of this young lad. He grows. He visits his father. He gets a headache. And he dies. We don't even know how old he was. We know that throughout the rest of the text, at times he's called a young man. In other words, he's, he's not grown. He's not an adult. He's, he's a young man, probably a boy or a lad. In fact, our particular translation calls him a child throughout this particular thing. Here's the epitaph. He lived, he breathed, he got sick, he died. And here's the embrace of a loving mother. She puts him on her lap. And you can imagine what that's like. This child that she's been given as a gift and she recognizes it was a miraculous conception and it is a gift because of God's direct intervention in her life. God brought her this prophet that she was generous to, she and her husband, and now he's given them this great and wonderful gift, and she has that gift sitting on her lap, and he dies. What is going through her head? Well, then she does things that I don't think many of us would consider doing. In this circumstance, of course, many of us Probably none of us in this room were given a supernatural birth. 
of this child. It's interesting, in this particular case, unlike all the other supernatural births like this, where a barren woman has been promised a child, this child is not either in the line of Christ or someone who's going to become a very important and fabulous figure among God's people. In this case, this barren woman is nameless and a nobody. And yet here she is being given this gift, and what does she do when the child dies? She puts him on the bed of the prophet, shuts the door, goes out of the house, goes down into the house and tells one of the servants to tell her husband to get her a donkey, that she's going to go visit the man of God. And the, of course, the husband has no idea the child has died. He does know that evidently, periodically, she might go to him either on the Sabbath to worship or on a new moon or a festival and he says, it's neither of those things. What are you doing, woman, through the servant? And she says to him, shalom, all is well, or never mind, depending on your consideration. These are such strange actions. The expired gift, here's the gift that has now expired. God's expiration date has come. The gift is now done. And she decides she's going to go after the source of the gift. These are the strange actions. Why is it that she goes off and does these things? Well, it's because she recognizes where the gift came from. And that's the only avenue she has to either retain the gift or to find some hope in a desperate situation. So these strange action and grief relate to these shalom answers. She first tells her husband, everything's okay. And I have to say, I don't know that I would say that to my spouse in that circumstance. She saddles the donkey. She says to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he sent Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite, run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is peace to you? Is peace to your husband? Is peace to the child? And she says, peace, shalom. That's interesting. Depending on the commentary you read, you might understand that the word peace means all is well. It has kind of a sense of all-inclusive well-being. It's not just your your health condition. It means that your whole life uh, seems to be in good order. But the other way you might come across this is some would say that she's basically saying, never mind right now, kind of avoiding a definite answer. This is what we do, isn't it? When somebody asks us, well, how are you? And say, oh, we're just fine. Sometimes we're not fine. We mean, I don't really want to talk about it. I'm not going to tell you. Maybe you're not someone I'm going to share my deepest problems with, whatever it is. And it's just a way to get on without divulging all of the details and the information of our life. But what is she doing? She's seizing hope in bitter distress. Because she's taking everything in her power to go as fast as she can, as much as she can, to the source of the person who predicted the birth of this child. And that's the man of God. In fact, when you first read this story, you wonder, does this woman have, have more interest in this man of God than in her own husband? He's such a minor character in the story. And perhaps you don't realize she's gone to Mount Carmel, which is about 12 to 15 miles away from Shunem, that she's riding on this donkey. You can imagine 
what that would be like. And so here she is. And yet we find in this story, if we jump down to verse 30, we find something amazing. The mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Now this is swearing that she's not going to leave Elisha when we get down to that part of the story. But here you are revealed now what she thinks about the God who gave her that great gift. It's the living God. She has this faith of someone who believes that God is alive. Just as Elisha is alive, so the Lord, Jehovah, is the living God. And even though he has allowed her son to give his last breath and expire, yet he is the living God that she can come to in times of distress. Now, she doesn't know what's going to happen. But that's the only place that she can turn. This is surprising faith in a nameless heroine, the Shunammite woman. I'd like to know her name when I get to heaven. But what about this prophet? She's pursued him for 12 to 15 miles. She's dropped everything to go to him. She's not even told her husband the circumstances. She's taking a beeline to find him and ask what he can do in this situation. And what is the prophet's response? He is helpless. In fact, when she goes, it says here, Verse 27, when she came to the mountains, the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. This is a reminder that even the most powerful, even the most well-known instruments of God on this earth, human beings, his ignorance displays his lack of omniscience. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't know this child has died. That has to be revealed to him from God. And then here are his actions. What does he do? He tells Gehazi once he figures out that something has happened to this child, he tells Gehazi to go up, gird up his loins, go off and go off with my staff in your hand. Lay the staff on the face of the child. And when you first read these, you think, oh, wow, that's going to be a miraculous thing. He's going to lay this thing on the face of the child, and that's either going to preserve that child, or it's going to waken him up. Something amazing is going to happen. But when Gehazi does this, there's no sound or sign of life. And he turns to meet him and told him the child has not awakened. Even the actions of the prophet, he's gone, Gehazi, go do all these weird things. And it finds that he lacks omnipotence. Elisha can't bring this child back to life. His staff can't do it. He can't do it. He didn't even know what had happened. This prophet that this woman has gone to see 15 miles on a donkey now is unable to do anything about this except for what's going to happen next. I have to say, Sometimes people come to a pastor for all kinds of different things. Sometimes I'm shocked at the problems or situations that people find themselves in. Sometimes people will ask me that three-letter question, why? Or they might say, how come? Why 
why did God let this happen in my life? Or why did God do these wonderful things and then take them away? Why is it that I find myself in this particular situation? What can you do for me? And sometimes I have no answer. None. I don't know why God did something in somebody's life. I don't know sometimes what to do. I don't know sometimes the doctrine of the theology behind the questions that they're asking. Sometimes I just don't have the answer. And what humility for Elisha, this man of God, this guy who can do miraculous things. Uh, just here in the last section of scripture, he has, he has told this woman to start pouring oil from a flask and it pours into all kinds of jars and flows to the extent that she's able to provide for her family for some time. And this guy says, I didn't know what was going on. Don't know what to do. You see, life is a gift of God, not in the power of man. Even the most gifted man of God can do nothing of his own power or by his own will to change the lives of others in a significant way. Life is the result, first, of faith that God puts in us by his Holy Spirit, but then a reminder that all life is a gift of the Lord. So what does Elisha do? Here's Elisha, the grumpy prophet that many say. But he goes with this woman. He acknowledges her grief, and he tells Gehazi, don't you see she's in utter distress because Gehazi wanted to just push her away. Don't you dare approach the prophet. But he acknowledges the grief, and now the circumstances are such he, he will accompany her back to her house. Here's where we pick up the story. Verse 32, Elisha comes into the house. He saw the child lying dead on his bed. So what did he do? Well, first of all, we're all reminded, death is the natural way of things, isn't it? Because we're sinners, the consequences of sin is death. And yet here... Elisha goes in, shuts the door, and prays. Just as death is the natural way, because God has ordained death to come to sinners because of the consequences of their sins, so life is the supernatural way of God. God gives life where there was none before. And Elisha prayed to the Lord. Elisha couldn't raise that child. I can't heal somebody of cancer. We can't do the amazing and powerful things that people ask us to do, but we can pray. God can do these things. Elisha prays. Then he does these strange things. I don't know why. I don't know what purpose they serve. I don't know what in the world this is supposed to tell us about this particular situation. It tells us he went up and he lay on the child, he put his mouth and his eyes and his hands on the mouth, eyes and hands of the child. He stretched himself upon him. The skin became warm. This is really, really rather disgusting when you think about it. And then he gets up and he walks down into the house one time. And he comes up and he lays back upon him. And the child, it says, sneezed seven times. And of course, I kind of laugh when I hear that because I have a sister who it used to be when she woke up every morning she would sneeze seven times when she woke up I don't know why she did some kind of strange thing about her life I guess but here he sneezes the seven times and he gets up and he's brought back to life the child's awakening sneezes 
And he's brought him, and then just in a matter-of-fact fashion, the scripture says, Elijah summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite, again, no names. So he called her, she comes to him, he tells her, pick up your son. She came, fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, picked up her son, and went out. Well, first of all, why doesn't God just raise everybody we want to be raised? Or at least all his people, all the time. Wouldn't it be great if God would just come and say, okay, this guy died, but you know, I, I really think that he should come back to life right now. Well, scripture reminds us that difficult experiences come so that God would be glorified. We don't know God's purpose. We don't know his plan. We don't know all the answers. I can't go to this text and say, why was this boy raised when some other dead person wasn't raised? I don't know. But we do know it glorified God. It didn't glorify Elisha. It didn't glorify this woman. It glorified God as the giver of life. You see, Elisha's involvement in God's resurrection of this boy sounds a lot like Elijah's involvement with the resurrection of the son of the widow Zarephath. In fact, he too laid down on this dead body. She too was someone who was in dire distress because her son had died. But you know, just on the other side of Shunem, on the other side of this hill, Shunem is on the south side of the hill at the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Just on the other side of that hill is the city of Nain, a town. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's the place where Jesus would raise a widow's son from the dead. There's a procession going by, a funeral procession, and the buyer of that young child, or that young man, uh, is going by, and he touches the buyer. And instead of praying, Jesus spoke. Rise up. You see, Jesus was not just a prophet. Yes, he was a prophet. He proclaimed God's word. He proclaimed repentance. He proclaimed the kingdom. But unlike Elisha, Jesus is the son of God, and he could speak this dead person into life, just as he called Lazarus from the tomb. As Elisha acknowledged the grief of this widow in our text, Jesus instead, before he raised up that son, rebuked the grief of the mother of that son. What a, what a terrible thing to do unless you had the power to change the circumstances. You see, Elisha's raising or involvement in the raising of this son, this child's life back from death, is a precursor and a preview of what Jesus would do just across the hill 800 years later in Nain. Jesus has the power to rebuke death, to conquer it, and to bring people back to life. Whereas two of these three resurrections spurred faith. After all, what happened to Elijah is the woman said, Now I know that you are a man of God. When Jesus raised the young man to life, the people marveled and said, Surely God has visited us. But in this context, we're reminded he works and operates to demonstrate the power of God. This woman already believed. But God is demonstrating that in him is life. You see, scriptures tell us, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. You see, it's not just that these individuals were raised by the power of God. They all died, you know. But in Christ... 
Once we are raised from the death according to our sins, he will give us life that lasts forever. It doesn't mean that we won't experience or taste death in this life, but it means we will come back to life and live forever at the last day. This is the, this is the attitude and the promptitude of this passage is to remind us of a preview of the life we have in Christ. In him is the Lord of life. What wonder, what power. We can only bow to God's omnipotence. We can only bow to God's omniscience that he is the one who gives life. Let us turn to him in the times of why, the times of despair, the times of distress, the times of grief. Let's pray. Lord, we still don't know all the answers. We don't know all the whys. But Lord, we know the end. We know that even though you may not raise one of our loved ones from the dead right now in this life for our benefit and our enjoyment, yet in the end, all of your people will rise at the last day and glorify your name. Father, we thank you that there is someone greater than Elisha that has come, that your son Jesus Christ has come, who gives us life. Help us, Lord, to turn to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.